Second Peter chapter 2, we're going to pick back up this morning in the 10th verse and journey through the rest of the chapter. And if you're turned there, would you stand with me out of respect for God's word as I read it for this morning's study. Second Peter chapter 2, speaking of false teachers, Peter continues by saying they are especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed, and they are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. But these, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption. And they will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who counted pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery that they cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Baor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked for his iniquity, a dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness... They allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who've actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him he is also brought into bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ... They are again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them to have not known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. And Father, we ask for the assistance of, of your Holy Spirit as we study the Word of God. We want to continue in an attitude of worship before you. And so we pray, Lord, that whatever that means in each one of us here, that you would prepare us to have a heart and a mind and a soul and a spirit that's receptive to hear what the very voice of the living God wants and needs to say to each one of us this morning through this portion of your word. Lord, every intent that was on your heart when you inspired it and wrote it, we pray that we might hear that this morning in a personal and in a direct way. Bless your word and speak to us by your spirit. We ask in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, what is probably one of the best ways to protect children from dangerous people? Uh, I think one of the clear ways to do that, that we as parents recognize and in culture recognize, is very simply, typically just to educate them. 
Dangerous people exist. It's a reality. There are those who want to kidnap children. There are those who are predators. And since dangerous people exist, certainly we should do our best as much as possible to try and protect our children from uh, being not only influenced, but actually preyed upon by such individuals. So because of that, we try and educate them to the best of our ability. Well, here we have God who is a loving father and all wise father. And that's exactly really in Second Peter chapter two, kind of what we find God doing, trying to educate us to educate us against spiritually dangerous people. Because spiritually dangerous people do exist. Second uh, Peter chapter 2, the whole chapter as a whole, really we sort of find a profile of false teachers. Uh, we've looked at a portion of it already. You remember in verses 1 through 3, there Peter sort of described the existence of false teachers. If you draw your attention with me back to verses 1 through 3, he just simply said, as there were also false prophets among the people... Even so, he says, there will be false teachers among you who will, he mentioned, secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. And Peter said, and many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed by covetousness they, they will exploit you with deceptive words and he said for a long time their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber and then he moved on in verses 4 down through 9 to then describe and declare how the judgment of God would indeed come upon these false teachers as well as he mentioned in those same verses all who in the same way live ungodly in displeasure to the Lord. Now as we come to our verses this morning in the remainder of the chapter Peter just goes on here by the Holy Spirit to just give further identifying marks of these false teachers for us and their ways and the purpose is really so that we might recognize these dangerous individuals who can corrupt and destroy people's spiritual destinies so that we might avoid their unhealthy influences, that we can do what we can to steer clear of their effects upon our lives spiritually and so that we do not find ourselves falling prey to their attempts to capitalize on our lives in the ways in which they do. So as we read together, begin back in verse 10, if you'll draw your attention there with me, Peter just continuing now by the Holy Spirit to speak of characterizing marks, identifying marks of false teachers. He says regarding them that these are those, he says, first of all, who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. He says they are presumptuous and they are self-willed. So a few things here the Holy Spirit identifies regarding false teachers. One thing we take note of in verse 10 is that false teachers, the Bible says, are not being led by the Holy Spirit. They are being led by their human spirit, which is sinful and depraved. He mentions in this verse here that they walk according to the flesh. The idea is the sinful nature. They walk according to the lust of uncleanness. They are driven by their strong desires within that are sinful and selfish. 
They're not being motivated or directed by the Spirit of God. They're not motivated even really to serve God or to serve His people. What they are motivated by instead is to really serve themselves under the appearance and the guise of being a minister of the gospel in some way. They do what they do, honestly, just to be able to get what they want. Jesus, describing false teachers and false prophets, said basically they're just hungry wolves that are well-dressed in sheep's clothing. And this is what the Bible is reminding us here. Their ministry activity is just a means to obtain things for themselves. They're walking after the flesh, the appetites of their own sinful desires. They are self-motivated. They just want to indulge their flesh. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul warned Timothy of false teachers there saying that they are men of corrupt minds, destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of to gain. Again, the Bible tells us that it's possible for a human being to have a distorted mindset, their mind so destitute of the truth, their mind so corrupt, where basically they will indeed use even the things of God as just a means to be able to obtain what they selfishly want for themselves. And 1 Timothy 6 says, when you recognize such people that are just trying to use the things of God to get ahead or to somehow satisfy their own carnal fleshly cravings, 1 Timothy 6 gives one instruction. It says, from such, withdraw yourself. That if you find yourself following after one that seems to be going this direction, if, if you sense such individuals and the red flag of discernment goes up in your heart or in your mind, the Bible just simply says, look, just get away. Just, just, just move away. Get out from under their influence. Don't interact with their presence. Recognize them for who they are. Because many times these false teachers are often privately indulging the very things that they're proclaiming other people should refrain from. And many times they're living in duplicity and they have a double life. Outwardly, they give the representation of what is godly and righteous, but yet the reality is privately many times they are walking after their flesh and just indulging themselves in carnal and in selfish ways, living double lives. The second thing we see from verse 10 regarding false teachers is Peter also points out here that they are those who do not like to operate in submission to any type of authority over their lives. Do you see what he says in our verse? In verse 10, he says that these false teachers, they despise. That's a strong word. They despise authority. The word despise means to disdain something, to, to, to really just really loathe something. He says these false teachers, one of the ways you can recognize them is they tend to despise and disdain authority in their life spiritually. They don't like the idea of having to be submitted to some other spiritual authority in their life. Uh, they don't like the idea of having to, in a sense, be accountable to someone else for their ministry. They don't like the idea, they, in fact, they disdain the idea, they despise having to have to answer to someone else for their particular work of ministry, to have some type of a covering over them or someone who they submit themselves to as a spiritual authority in their lives. They feel contempt 
towards being submitted to some leader or overseer. And many a times you find that in that there's just a sense and an attitude where they scorn the idea of needing to actually listen to or receive the correction or counsel of some spiritual overseer in their life. They despise authority. They're mavericks. They want to be able to do what they do without having to answer to anyone or give account to anyone. And let me just say this. Authority and submission is a part of God's created order in every institution of life, whether it's the family or government or school systems and even in ministry. Authority and submission is God's design to safeguard all of us from error. We're all capable of error. We're all capable of of unintentionally or purposely if our hearts get out of tune beginning to gravitate in wrong directions and therefore God establishes authority in all of our lives. Even pastors need a pastor. Even ministers need ministry overseers because it is something that safeguards us. And when you see, listen, when you see someone who is seeking to be a minister and they disregard the value or the need to have an overseer in their life, to be submitted to the counsel or the oversight of someone else in spiritual authority, I tell you, listen, blink, blink, something is amiss. Something's amiss. That's a very unhealthy thing. Thirdly, notice as well regarding these false teachers in verse 10, the Bible identifies that they seem to have an aroma of, of sort of being a little bit or a lot arrogant and rather headstrong. They have an aroma of being arrogant and headstrong. Do you see the terms he uses to describe them? He says in verse 10, these false teachers tend to be presumptuous and self-willed. The word presumptuous speaks of arrogantly overstepping proper boundaries it indicates a person who, who kind of takes liberties to themselves to just overstep boundaries and, and in inappropriate and inconsiderate ways, they just blow past any boundaries in their life and they sort of feel the liberty to behave as if they actually deserve special entitlements. They're presumptuous. So they don't honor boundaries. From their perspective, they deserve certain things. So they just feel the tendency to be able to just in inconsiderate and wrong ways overstep boundaries and blow past and just do what they want when they want. And that's sort of the, the arrogancy of that air of that attitude. And he says as well, they are also self-willed. The idea again is stubbornly driven. Someone who's self-willed is somebody who is stubbornly driven to get one's own way and have one's own desire in matters. They're headstrong. And they tend to be the type of individuals who are stubbornly pushed past whatever they need to acquire what they want to do or they want to get. At all costs, they will pursue progress in their program and it doesn't matter who or what gets in their way because they're going to put forward their agenda and their program. They act in ways that have no respect for God's honor and no regard for the effect it has upon the people that they supposedly minister to. And the Bible says when you begin to see these characteristics in those who call themselves ministers, he says, be careful. God says, be careful. This is an unhealthy thing when you begin to see these type of things. A minister, listen, a minister of the gospel who is reflecting Jesus Christ, who's being led by Jesus Christ, should be not walking in the flesh. They should be walking in the spirit. They shouldn't be arrogant. They should be humble in spirit. 
They shouldn't be some maverick with a self-driven agenda that nobody's going to tell them what to do and, and they despise all form of authority because they are the authority. No, no, no. It should be someone who, who submits themselves unto the Lord by submitting themselves to proper spiritual authority and accountability in their life who recognizes they need to be accountable and answer to someone else as well and, and someone who has pure motives and a humility and they desire God's will, not being self-willed. They want to see God's will and what benefits His people. Our verses go on telling us in verse 10 that they also are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. And the term does seem to speak of spiritual beings when that term is used there. He says, verse 11, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. So take note, another sort of identifying mark of false teachers is they sort of have and show no reverence for spiritual things. There's sort of a, a missing reverence for spiritual realities. Peter describes how they speak sort of arrogantly and presumptuously about spiritual things, almost, almost a little bit of like with a flippant attitude, if you understand what I mean, where there just seems to be no real uh, you know, demonstration of reverence for spiritual realities. Peter says here, they're not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. And, and then he says, verse 11, whereas angels, even angels, he says, Angels themselves, which are much greater in power than might, than finite little human beings. He says even angels don't show this kind of irreverence and flippancy. He says they exercise reverence and restraint. Angels out of proper fear of God and a proper reverence and respect for spiritual realities and, and spiritual principalities and powers. He says they don't even bring a reviling accusation against one another before the presence of the Lord. The point he's making is, is angels don't act arrogantly as if they're authorized to almost be like God themselves, demanding and commanding things in the spiritual realm. They recognize that's God's realm of authority. You know, Jude, when he's speaking of the same issue in his writing regarding false teachers and their irreverency, he says this, Yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Again, the indication that even Michael, the highest ranking archangel, had this reverence, he demonstrated that reverence. There wasn't this sort of flippancy where he was overstepping his bounds and somehow uh, acting as if he had more authority than he really did. Again, if, if I can illustrate, it's almost, if you would imagine, let's say, for example, you have a, a large corporation, large corporation, maybe a few thousand people, and, and here you have this entry-level employee of a large corporation, and this entry-level employee somehow develops this arrogant attitude and starts disrespectfully and flippantly sort of you know, condemning and accusing one of the executive VPs in the company. And another executive vice president sees this going on and, and watching this kind of goes, whoa, 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 what do you think you're doing? Where would you think that you have the, you know, the right? What what kind of flippant audacity is this? That I don't even. I'm a I'm a VP as well, and I don't even speak to my fellow executives in this way. Let alone the the CEO of the company doesn't speak to executives like this. 
The idea, again, is that that's totally out of place. You are overstepping your bounds with absolutely no reverence for where you are positionally in the authority that is over you. And this is kind of this idea spiritually that the Bible is pointing out here where there is something wrong when a human being begins to conduct themselves and speak in a way as if they actually possess a spiritual authority where they, they can actually demand spiritual things, like they're God or something, where they can command spiritual things. I have a great concern when I, I hear people, almost as if with an assumed spiritual authority, demanding the devil to do things, commanding the devil. Listen, Bible says that Michael the archangel said, the Lord rebuked you. The Michael, Michael the archangel who ultimately overcomes the devil it, when you read the book of Revelation and, and, and deals with him severely, he recognized the authority of the Lord. He, sa he said, the Lord rebuke you. There wasn't this taking upon oneself the authority as if somehow we can act and behave like we're God. And he says, be careful. When you see this sort of, this irreverency where there's kind of a taking of an, a spiritual authority way beyond what it seems a person should have, uh, something's not healthy. This was one of the marks, Peter says, of those who were false teachers in that day and those who exist still. Verse 12, he goes on to describe saying, but these false teachers, like natural brute beasts... The Bible is very descriptive, isn't it? Natural brute beasts. That's a guy's term. Made to be caught and destroyed, they speak evil of things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption. And they will receive the wages of unrighteousness. So here in these verses, Peter speaks of how these false teachers, notice, will ultimately experience the consequences of, that are justly deserved for their unrighteous ways. He likens them there in verse 12 to brute beasts, animals, he says, which will be captured and slaughtered. The idea there is despite how fat a false teacher may be getting from their selfish endeavors and self-indulgent ways, and despite how free they may feel roaming around doing what they're doing, what God is saying here is one day, just like an animal, they will be caught and they will be dealt with accordingly. They will be caught and dealt with accordingly. He says they speak evil of things they do not understand. The idea is speaking wrongly about manners. Why? Because they're blinded in their spiritual deception. Our verses tell us here they will utterly perish, it says in the text, in their own corruption. The idea they're utterly perishing in your own corruption that you're creating. The idea is their corrupt practices, as they operate in these corrupt practices, they're slowly and gradually just polluting their own waters. And as they continue really to just sort of drink from their own poison well, they bring their own destruction upon themselves. Because ultimately that pollution becomes something that they themselves just corrupt themselves in as well. And he says, lastly, in verse 13, the beginning there, they will receive the wages of unrighteousness. They will receive their wages. Now, what are wages? Wages are basically what you receive as a payment for what you have done. And what the Bible is telling us here is those who are guilty of unrighteous practices will be properly repaid for the unrighteous and ungodly things that they're doing. 
And, you know, as we look at this, certainly we would recognize that these are identifying marks of false teachers. But you know what? The spiritual principle abides for all of us. That when we do things, let us never be deceived to think that somehow we can mock God and we are not going to experience consequences if we are doing things that are outside of God's word and outside of God's will. The Bible says, be not deceived. God is not mocked and what a man sows will also reap. And in the same way, God's not going to show partiality to any one of us. If we are doing things that are unrighteous, listen, the Bible says the backslider in heart will be filled with his own ways. And when we are sowing to certain things that are ungodly and wrong, we will receive the wages of that unrighteous behavior. Listen, is there forgiveness available? Absolutely. But it does not mean it eliminates consequences. Be careful. Be careful. He says these false teachers will one day in time experience the consequences of the very things that they're doing. He goes on, verse 13, to say they are as those who count it a pleasure to carouse in the daytime, that is in broad daylight. Peter says their spots and blemishes carousing in their own deceptions while at the same time, he says, while they feast with you. So what Peter is telling us here is how false teachers so driven for satisfying their own appetites, being self-indulgent, how what they do because they want their pleasures fulfilled is they operate in incredible deception by sort of mingling and meeting together with the people of God in such a way where they can position themselves to feast upon and feed upon God's people. He describes here how they assemble together, he says, with you during your love feast. Now, that's a term in the Bible there that describes some of what was a practice in the early church where many times they would get together, uh, maybe what we might call today as a Christian potluck where everybody would bring a meal and an agape or a love feast. They would share food and fellowship and a lot of times it would then culminate in sharing communion afterwards at the end. And what he's describing here is how they gather together, he says, together with you, he says, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you. The, the, the picture is how they, they would attend the Christian activities. They would mingle together with the meetings of the church and God's people and seek to blend in and be involved in all the same practices and activities of other people who are part of God's flock. But all the while, they're working deception. Why? To position themselves in a place whereby they might capitalize and satisfy their appetite. He says here in our verses, they're carousing in deception right while they're feasting with you. Right while they're feasting with you, there's deception going on in their heart and activity. The Bible here identifies them. Peter says they are spots and blemishes among you, he says in our text. Now, typically, if, if you have a stain or a spot on your shirt, for example, typically there's a stain or a spot on your shirt. The goal is to remove that stain or spot. Why? Because if not, well, then the whole garment is ruined. And the Bible is painting a spiritual picture here saying false teachers, this is what they're like. They're like stains that spoil and ruin things among God's people spiritually. And that is why, that is why they must be identified and why they also ought to be removed. 
because they can defile the entirety of, of God's people if left to exist like a stain that the go away. That's a stain. We need to get that stain out. We need to remove that in the same way spiritually there's a defilement of false teachers and therefore the Bible says they need to be recognized and removed before a greater defilement happens. And then Peter begins to define in our next verses some of the reasons why they do mingle among God's flock. And why they position themselves where they do in deceptive ways to satisfy their desires. Look what he says, verse 14. He says, one reason is because having eyes full of adultery, they cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. Notice, he describes these false teachers positioning themselves deceptively as those who have eyes, it says, full of, the idea is overflowing with the desire for adultery. Listen, it may not be what you want to hear this morning and shocking to some, but it is true that some false teachers in spiritual settings are nothing more than sexual predators. And that's all they are. And there are those, listen, who will position themselves among the church, will position themselves among a group of God's people, and when they see women within the church, they think only of how they can seduce, them, seduce those women for their own sexual appetites. And they will take to themselves a role in a position whereby they can you know, kind of have themselves in a place where the only thing they're doing as they're watching and looking around is considering and looking for vulnerable, unstable individuals who they can somehow seduce with temptation to ultimately satisfy their own sexual appetites and they will deliberately target unstable people. Do you notice what he says in our text there? He says, eyes full of adultery, they cannot cease from sin. It's as enticing, unstable souls. The other, there are individuals who will plant themselves in a ministry position in such a way whereby they can target vulnerable individuals that they can manipulate mentally and emotionally. And they find out and search out and almost hunt out those who they can bait with that temptation and will use their position to satisfy their sexual appetites. And listen, that may not be something pleasing to hear, but yet God warns it may be hard to swallow, but he says you need to recognize, you need to accept and realize that even among the ranks of what seem to be the church and God's people, there are those who get themselves in a spiritual position who are so full of lust and a craving for sexual and adulterous activity that they will search for vulnerable women to take advantage of and will use their position to be able to manipulate their way in to take advantage of those kind of things. And he says they're so driven by lust and perversion, he says in our text here, that they cannot cease from sin. The idea there is publicly they may present a very polished image, but privately they are out of control with lust. Out of control. And know who they prey on. Again, please note, because it's important to see, it says enticing, unstable souls. Enticing, unstable souls. That word enticing is a fishing term, which means to use good bait to be able to catch your prey. And it says they entice, they bait unstable souls. They, they go after those, the term indicates, who are not rooted those who are not established, maybe they're new converts to Christ. Maybe they're someone who came out 
of, of a very promiscuous or sexual lifestyle and so they still struggle with that particular area and there's a weakness to that area and so they go after individuals who are easily uprooted and so therefore I think all of us need to be wise to recognize I need to do everything I can as a Christian to make sure that I'm not an unstable soul. And I tell you this morning, out of love as a fellow brother in Christ, the best way to make yourself stable spiritually is to saturate your soul with the Word of God. Because if you know the truth, you will recognize error. And if the light of God's Word is shining in your heart and mind because you're acquainted with it, then it will clearly shine and indicate rather quickly those individuals and those things that are not healthy. So listen, be careful. Don't become an unstable soul. Know the Word of God. Stay close to the Lord. Get yourself rooted in the things of Christ. Get yourself grounded in the Word of God so that you safeguard yourself from being an enticement as an unstable soul by those who are such individuals. Verse 14, he goes on to say in the second half of the verse that these individuals, these false teachers, again, Peter comes back to an idea he did in the beginning of the chapter. He says they have a heart that is trained in covetous practices. And he says they are accursed children. Now, interesting, Peter here again, this is the second time in the chapter, comes back to this reminder of how such individuals, these false teachers, he's reminding us they are basically very gifted at working angles to separate people's money from their pocket into their hand. Remember back in verse 3, he said there, we read it earlier, by covetousness, these false teachers, by covetousness, they will exploit you make merchandise of you like a salesperson. They will make merchandise saying whatever they need to say to capitalize, to, to make this up. They will take merchandise of you by using deceptive words. Here again, Peter comes back to this same idea a second time, almost indicating, I don't want you to miss this point because this is a clear mark of false teachers, an incredible emphasis upon money a constant seeming to somehow push things in that direction and, and make the attention about this or, or money or you must give to this or you ought to give to that. And, and he says, listen, this greedy agenda to extort money through these deceptive sales tactics, he says, this is a clear indication. This is an obvious sign, he says, of where someone is at. Uh, you know, re they're just religious salespeople. Listen, they know how to represent themselves as godly. But salespeople, they go to sales seminars that teach them how to present yourself in a way that you win the attention, you know, how you win you know, friends and influence people. And he says, it's just religious salesmanship. That's all it is. They know how to represent themselves well and they know how to speak in certain ways. He says they are, look at the term there. It says they're trained in covetous practices trained in covetous practices. The idea is they have skill to know how to speak in a way that's going to pull people's heartstrings. Listen, let's not be vulnerable and foolish and naive. They can speak in a way to stir people's heartstrings and to stir up kind of sympathy and the sense of obligation or need and, and they prey upon those who, what? They want to be like God. I want to be like God. God's giving. Hey, that's a fishing pond for a religious salesman. 
These people seem to be people who like to give. So there are those who are going to plant themselves in that position. And again, the sad thing is what happens? These are the knuckleheads that get all depressed. Right? What do you see on the news? What do you see on TV? What happens on media? All the idiots. Right? It's not sincere people who love Jesus and are serving God's people. That's not who gets press. It's all the bad press of those who are like this many a times that end up what's showing up where basically you have these individuals who are doing such things. Be careful when you see a lot of emphasis on money. Point blank. Just be careful. When that always seems to be the emphasis, know that you may have someone as a false teacher who is just skilled at saying and doing things to get people's money out of their pocket and into their hands. It happens. And God says, don't be foolish. Recognize this reality. In fact, verse 15 and 16, he goes on to even cite an example to show there's nothing new under the sun. This has always existed among the congregation and works of God. He says, verse 15, these individuals who have covetous practices, they have forsaken the right way. They've gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked for his iniquity, a dumb donkey, speaking with a man's voice, restrained the madness of that prophet. So Peter here cites an example of a greedy prophet from the Old Testament. Balaam, he describes, and the story of Balaam is found in Numbers chapter 22 through 24. Time doesn't permit us to rehearse the whole story, but if you don't know it, you should familiarize yourself with it. It's rather an, an enigma of, of stories. Balaam, this individual who seemed to clearly have a prophetic gift from God to be able to speak at times words from God to people. But yet we see in the story that Balaam used his ministry capability as a means of financial enrichment for himself. And initially God warns him not to follow King Balak's request to go and try and curse the children of Israel. And yet as the stakes are raised and, and the, the wages and the compensation that he would receive increased and it became more of a lucrative opportunity, his heart was swayed and turned and ultimately Balaam becomes a picture of someone who saw he could acquire vast sums of money through his religious work and he pursued that to his own, in a sense, uh, downfall. Willing to compromise what is right, willing to compromise, to harm God's people, to acquire wealth for himself and personal profit. And really the story of Balaam, if you could summarize it, is a story of someone who the power, listen, the power of the love of money corrupted his heart and his service and ministry. It was the power and love for money that caused his heart to go amiss and he turned astray. And, and Peter says here, that's like these false teachers, they've forsaken the right way. They've forsaken the right way because they loved the wages of unrighteousness. This is what false teachers often do many a times. They, they, they see ministry as a door of enrichment. Jude 11 says this regarding false teachers. They've run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit. And here's what's interesting. Verse 17, the Holy Spirit points out, or 16, excuse me, part of what happened with Balaam, this false prophet who greedily went after game, 
and forsook the purity of his ministry, he says, he reminds us of the story where he was rebuked for his iniquity when a donkey speaking with a man's voice tried to restrain the madness of the prophet. Now, I look at that and I go, wow, God is incredibly gracious. If you seriously consider that, here is someone who for the greedy gain of his own self-profit was willing to abandon God's will, to harm God's people, to use the things of God as personal enrichment to make his life better and to try and live higher on the hog off the backs of God's people and God's work in a sense. And you would think that God would say, you know what? Have at it and may you smack a brick wall sooner rather than later. But what does God do? In that story, the angel of the Lord comes and he's standing in the path before Balaam who's riding on his donkey and his donkey, remember, pushes up against a wall and, and crushes Balaam's foot and so Balaam starts beating his donkey because he's like, what's the matter with you? Go forward. And he's getting mad and he's beating his donkey and beating his donkey because his donkey, the Bible says sees this angel of the Lord trying to stop Balaam from going in the wrong direction that he's going. Ultimately, he, as he's beating the donkey, eventually the donkey, God opens the donkey's mouth and the donkey basically says, look, haven't I always been a good donkey? Have you known me to crush your feet against walls or to sit down and be stubborn and not go forward even when you're beating me relentlessly the way that you're... And, and, and Balaam, now, now look, people go, that's crazy. I can't believe a, a donkey talked. Well, listen, what's more crazy is a man talked back to a donkey. That's even crazier. And Balaam begins to have an argument with this donkey. And what's God doing? Trying to restrain his madness. The extent that God went to, it says trying to rebuke him and restrain his madness. What are you doing, Balaam? And the extent God went through to try and stop and restrain him, and yet he still pushed past it in his stubbornness and his deliberateness. I mean, it's just amazing to me the grace that God shows to us even when we're headed in wrong directions. It's just astonishing to me. Verse 17, it goes on to say of false teachers, they are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved, strong language, the blackness of darkness forever. So he pictures here false teachers, how they utterly fail to supply anything helpful for those who are coming to receive something from God through them. He gives the appearance of, uh, of false teachers, again, representing something. They represent as being from God and offering refreshment to God's people, yet they never supply what thirsty people really need. He gives two pictures there to illustrate how they fail to supply what is helpful. He speaks of wells without water, Imagine if you're thirsty, you're walking through the arid deserts of Palestine and to see a well in the distance, oh, water, water. And then you finally get to that well and you lower your bucket down and you hear, and you know it's a dry well. And the disappointment of that, the reality that, oh, I thought there was the promise of refreshment here. I was sure I was going to get something and to find nothing but a mouthful of sand. 
and the utter disappointment that would bring were like rain clouds that come over the horizon and it looks like you're finally going to get some rain for your dry fields and yet then they just move on and the shower never comes and oh, and you're just so let down by that. And he says this is a picture of what false teachers do. They represent having something to offer but yet they leave people in utter disappointment. And they fail to supply the living waters that God really needs to send into people's lives. And the tragedy is how devastating that can be to people spiritually. Because consider, people come many times with severe and and genuine, sincere spiritual needs. And they're thirsty. They're thirsty for God. And let's say you have someone where maybe they've come to a place in their life where they say, you know what, I'm going to go to God. The wells of this world, none of them satisfy. I'm tired of getting drunk and being miserable. I'm tired of doing drugs and being miserable. I've tried all these relationships. I'm empty and miserable. I tried this and acceptance from friends. And they've tried everything in the wells of this world. And they're poisoned and they're sick and tired of being sick and tired. So they go, you know what? Maybe I'll try God. Maybe I'll try God. And so they go to seek God. And let's say they go to one of these false teachers who's supposed to represent God and then they find themselves in the midst of that experience because it's a false teacher never getting anything that they actually need their thirst never being quenched and the utter can you imagine the utter disappointment when your last resort is God and you go to somebody who's supposed to be a man of God and you get nothing but disappointed you get nothing but a dry mouth full of sand or something that's really toxic and poisonous and how utterly discouraging and deflating that would be for a human being. That can destroy someone's life. And this is why it is so dangerous that false teachers do what they do as representatives of the Lord when they're not. He says, therefore, verse 17 What is reserved for them, God says, is the blackness of darkness forever. Verse 18, he says, For when they speak, they speak great swelling words of emptiness. Those great terms together. They speak great swelling words of emptiness. False teachers understand, oftentimes, are very eloquent and impressive speakers. They speak great swelling words. They They can stir crowds. They know how to entertain with their communication and captivate people and they can speak in skilled and polished ways as as orators. And they can give an impressive presentation with their verbal skills, yet all the while, their great swelling words of emptiness. So it's impressive speech, it's entertaining, it stirs people, it's so polished, but yet what the Bible's saying, but yet there's never anything of real substance in what they say. Oh, it sounds impressive. They look impressive. Everyone's impressed. But they never receive anything really spiritually helpful to feed their soul and to strengthen them spiritually. It, it's like cotton candy, Right? You put candy in your mouth and oh, oh, you get that rush and it's gone and there wasn't much nourishing in that. You can't survive off cotton candy. And, and this is what happens. Oh, impressive, great swelling words, but they're great swelling words of emptiness. Listen, I would rather listen to a monotone, spirit-filled, anointed communicator of the Word of God that is about as boring as maybe anybody thinks. Not that I think teaching should be boring. 
and have them feed and nourish my soul with the word of God rather than trying to impress me with how clever they are. Because I need something to survive all week in the world. So I need to be fed with nourishment spiritually. Jude says they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. And he says they speak these great swelling words of emptiness, alluring through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who've actually escaped from those who live in error. So another thing you notice of false teachers is they appeal to people's carnal appetites. They allure through the lusts of the flesh. Even believers who've once escaped from living in error, at times they can draw them back in by what they do is, he says, they allure through the lusts of the flesh. The idea is they indicate that it's okay to indulge the lusts of the flesh. Typically, the message, many times of a false teacher, is removed of things like repentance, and calling sin, sin, and saying that we should live holy or a denial of self and that we should live submitted to God's word. They water down and soften the message to accommodate what people want to hear. Because then we can keep people coming to hear what we have to say and maybe give more of what they want to give. And he says this is many a times a characterizing mark. They imply everyone should have freedom to indulge the lusts of their flesh and yet the Bible says, no, we should be crucifying our flesh. And the works of the flesh, the Bible says, those who practice such things won't inherit the kingdom of God. But this is many times how they allure. They water down a message. They, they, they say things like, listen, God understands. God understands your situation. And God knows that you need a special pass. And, and so they indicate to people, God's okay. God's okay with the way that you're living. Instead of calling people to repentance. Or calling people to live godly in Christ Jesus, they rationalize and justify the fleshly ways. They allure people by appealing to their carnal, sinful nature. And that's appealing to people because we all have a sinful nature. And an easy message is easy to swallow. And this is part of the deception often that takes place. Peter says of false teachers, verse 19, they promise liberty while they themselves are slaves of corruption. Notice, false teachers promise liberty. They promise liberty. But hear me, it is not freedom from sin, as Jesus taught. It's freedom to sin and indulge your carnal ways and, and, and don't worry, God will be okay with that. And, and there won't be any consequences because God understands your situation. They promise liberty to live however people want without consequence, but that's utter deception. That's utter deception. Because the reality is this, liberty to sin, liberty to live however you want according to your fleshly sinful appetites, that is not liberty or freedom, that's a pathway to enslavement. Jesus said whoever sins becomes a slave to sin. And to tell people you have the liberty to live how you want, God's okay with it, if you think God's commands are too restrictive for that area of your life, well, okay, God's okay with that. You, you can just disregard that one area because I know you, you really need that. And, and so God understands he's okay with that. Listen, that is leading people into bondage. He says here, they promise liberty while they themselves, the false teachers, they're, they're slaves themselves. They're enslaved to sinful things. They're enslaved to their own passions as they live out their own perspectives. And Peter, verse 19, says there, by whom a person is overcome, by him he's also brought into bondage. He's warning there, listen, don't be overcome by such people. 
Because if you allow yourself to fall prey to submitting to false teachers and their leadership and become enslaved, he says, it's bondage. And many times it's hard to get out of that. And people find a real struggle breaking free when they're in a place following doctrine or individual they shouldn't be. And look, as we study these things, may these things as marks that we're looking at, I pray by the grace of God, protect all of us. Protect all of us from the influences of things that can harm our lives. Verse 20, Peter goes on to say, For if after they've escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse than the first for them in the beginning. For it would have been better, the Bible says, for them to have not known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. So here the Bible gives a very strong warning of those who turn away from the truth and go back to error, even once they've known the truth. Now people debate, and if you've studied these chapters before, people debate here whether these verses are a reference to the false teachers still or whether this is a reference to the believer who has submitted to a false teacher and therefore been led astray into error once they were following the truth and have now become apostate or under the direction of a false teacher. Despite which it may refer to, and I'm not 100% certain, the way the context flows there, which it's referring to specifically, here's the bottom line. The spiritual truth is what's important not to miss here. The spiritual truth remains the same. What the text is telling us is that in spiritual life, knowledge is responsibility. Knowledge is responsibility. He says in our verses here, once a person has escaped, and once a person has had the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, if they're again entangled, he says, then the latter end is going to be worse for them than what it is at the beginning. He says, verse 21, it would have been better to have not known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from it once you know it. Listen, God holds men completely accountable for what they know spiritually. Once we have knowledge, God holds us accountable. It is a very, very, very dangerous thing to know the truth and to ignore it to understand the truth and walk away from it. Once you hear the truth and you understand spiritual knowledge, to turn away from that is a very dangerous and grievous thing because God holds you accountable for what you know. And once you know, God holds you accountable. To whom much is given, much is required, the Bible says. It's a very, very dangerous thing once you know the truth to reject it and the consequences of doing that are grievous. Be careful. Whether you're a Christian and you choose to walk away or whether you are unsaved and you understand the claims of the gospel and the truth of what it means to be saved and have a relationship with Jesus Christ and you are rejecting that, that's dangerous. Be very, very careful. He says, verse 22 in conclusion, but it happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit. Anyone seen that before? That'll give you a good lunch appetite, huh? And a sow, a pig having washed to her wallowing in the mud. So Peter concludes verse 22 by saying, those who've done this, those who once were in the way of righteousness, walking in the truth, and they turned and they walked away from it after it seemed that they were once in that path, he says simply they have experienced what the true proverb says, 
that a dog returns to his vomit and a pig, even if you wash it and clean it up, it always goes back to wallowing in the mire. What he's saying is the reason people may walk away from the right path spiritually when at one point it appeared they were, they were on the right course, and he says is this, is because the inward nature always determines appetite and behavior. The inward nature always appetites the behavior and appetite. That's why a dog eats its own vomit. Because it's a dog. That's what dogs do. Dogs behave like dogs. That's why a pig, you can wash it up outwardly, clean it up, you can put lipstick on the thing. But because it's still a pig, it's going to act like a pig. Because that's what its nature is. Unless you change the nature the nature will always come forth. The condition of the inward nature ultimately will always surface and influence the behavior of any creature. And the same is true with human beings. The inward nature ultimately will surface and reflect itself. In time, true colors will rise to the surface. And that is why it is not enough. It is not enough for a human being to just try and get rid of a few bad things from their life well, maybe if I just vomit a few of these things out of my life, I get rid of a few bad things. And maybe if I just try and clean up my act, then I'll be right with God. No, you won't. That won't work. If that's all you do in a matter of time, you just try and clean up your act a little bit and get rid of a few things in a matter of time because your nature is still the same in here, you'll go back to acting like a dog and acting like a pig. You need to become a sheep. And sheep need to be born sheep. Your nature needs to be changed. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away, all things become new. The thing you need this morning is a new nature. And that comes by putting your faith in Christ and letting him enter into your life and change your nature.